0: Good afternoon and welcome to On the Arts, KLW's radio magazine of the performing arts. I'm your host, David LaTulip. And welcome, dear listener, to its new time and day, Wednesdays at 4. As part of KLW's schedule reshuffling, we're gearing up to offer you an arts block on your Wednesday afternoon. After On the Arts, we'll be offering a new program, The Arts Hour, at least new to us, from the BBC in the 5 o'clock hour. Today on the Arts, this hour, I'll be talking with one of the busiest trumpeters in showbiz, Grammy Award winner Chris Bodie, who's in town for a stint at SF Jazz. Plus, music historian Robert Greenberg on his latest projects. And the Brentano String Quartet, Nina Lee Cellist, will be with us. Perhaps a ticket giveaway as well. All that, after the news.
1: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. President Biden plans to visit the border next week when he travels to Mexico. NPR's Franco Ordonez reports he'll outline some of his plans during a speech on immigration tomorrow. Speaking with reporters after an event in Kentucky, Biden said it's his intention to visit the border as he makes his way to Mexico City for the
0: North America Leaders Summit. He said he wants to see peace and security there. I'm going to
1: see what's going on. I'm going to be making a speech tomorrow on border security, and uh, you'll hear more about it tomorrow.
0: Border security is expected to be one of the top topics of conversation at the summit with the leaders of Mexico and Canada. This will be Biden's first trip to the border as president, and lawmakers have criticized him for not visiting sooner, as the number of migrants arriving at the border spikes to increasingly concerning levels. Franco Ordonez, NPR News.
1: Another day, another failed effort by Republicans to elect a Speaker of the House with no clear path forward as Republican leader Kevin McCarthy and half a dozen ballots has failed to get the votes needed. Lawmakers no closer than they were a day ago, despite former President Donald Trump lending his support to McCarthy. A small group led by the chamber's most conservative members has repeatedly voted in favor of other candidates, maintaining McCarthy is neither tough enough nor conservative enough to battle Democrats in the chamber. The House has adjourned until 8 p.m. Eastern Time tonight to presumably try again. The world's Catholics are paying tribute to Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI following his death last week. Texas Public Radio's Joey Palacios reports the Archbishop of San Antonio, who was appointed by Benedict over a decade ago, held a Mass in his honor this morning.
2: San Antonio Archbishop Gustavo Garcia Sierra was appointed by Benedict XVI in
0: 2010, a couple of years before Benedict became the first pope to resign in 600 years. Garcia-Sierra described him as affable, kind, and a wise man who
2: was often an introvert. His talent was above all the knowledge of the scriptures, the traditions of the church, and the doctrine of the church. That is what he passed on. The mass included a handful of bishops from Texas, Oklahoma, and Arkansas who were in San Antonio for a retreat. The
0: current pontiff, Pope Francis, will hold a Requiem Mass at St. Peter's Basilica at the Vatican early Thursday morning. I'm Joey Palacios in San Antonio.
1: Twitter says it will ease its ban on political advertising. It's the latest change by law in Musk as he tries to pump up revenue after purchasing the social media platform last year. The company says it's relaxing its policy for cause-based ads in the U.S. It also says it plans to expand political advertising it permits in the coming weeks. Twitter had banned all political advertising in 2019 in reaction to growing concerns about misinformation. The Dow was up 133 points. This is NPR. Officials representing Buffalo Bills player Damar Hamlin say the NFL safety's recovery appears to be moving in a positive direction two days after he collapsed on the field during a game against the Cincinnati Bengals. Hamlin went into cardiac arrest, requiring immediate medical attention. The family of the 24-year-old player is reportedly optimistic, but further details are not being released. It's only known Hamlin remains hospitalized in critical condition in intensive care. The Polish government is sounding the alarm about a recent increase in Russian cyber attacks on Polish systems. Polish officials say they believe the country's ongoing support for Ukraine is the reason. And Paris Jenna McLaughlin is more.
0: In the final hours of 2022, Polish officials published a statement on the government's website concerning a spike in Russian cyber attacks. According to the statement, Polish officials believe Russia is ramping up its efforts due to Poland's strong, vocal support of Ukraine. Since the beginning of the war, Poland has been a vital ally, acting as a pipeline for millions of refugees. In a recent example of Russian retaliation, Polish officials said their parliament adopted a resolution condemning Russia as a state sponsor of terrorism. Then, hackers took out the parliament website. The officials say hackers have also published fake Polish websites to spread disinformation. The Prime
1: Minister has raised the alarm about cyber risk in Poland as a result. Jenna McLaughlin, NPR News. Crude futures prices moving in the opposite direction of stocks today, oil down benchmark crude fell more than $4 a barrel to 72.84 a barrel on the New York Mercantile Exchange. I'm Jack Spear, NPR News in Washington. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include Heather Sturt Haga and Paul G. Haga, supporting African Wildlife Foundation, working to ensure wildlife and wild lands thrive in modern Africa. Learn more at awf.org.
0: Welcome to On the Arts. I'm David Latulib, your host. If you're expecting another hour of all things considered, I'm sorry to disappoint you, but hope to entertain you as we're now offering an arts block for your Wednesday afternoons from 4 to 6. On the Arts will be followed by the Arts Hour from the BBC at 5. If you're new to On the Arts, which has been broadcast previously on Thursdays at, 4, at 1 p.m., A look at the program, which we call KLW's Radio Magazine of the Performing Arts, as a showcase of what's happening in the Bay Area and the world of music, dance, drama, all things culturally considered, with me more as a cheerleader than critic. This week, we start with a phenomenal trumpet player. Chris Bodie, and a tune written by Victor Young, what I just learned for the 1952 film One Minute to Zero, with lyrics unheard here by Edward Heyman. Although from the style of trumpet playing, one can almost hear the singer. Chris Bodie, in, ty- in town for a series of show at SF Jazz through the 8th of January. Since the release of his 2004 critically acclaimed CD, interestingly enough, entitled When I Fall in Love, Chris Bode has become the largest selling American instrumental artist. His success has crossed over to audiences usually reserved for pop music and his ongoing association with PBS has led to four number one jazz albums as well as multiple gold, platinum and Grammy awards. Most recently, his latest album, Impressions, won the Grammy for Best Pop Instrumental Album. He's a constantly worldwide touring performer, which we'll talk about, selling more than some 4 million albums. Over the past three decades, Chris has recorded and performed with the best in the biz, including, among others, Sting, Barbara Streisand, Tony Bennett, Lady Gaga, Josh Groban, Yo-Yo Ma, Michael Buble, Paul Simon, Joni Mitchell. I don't think I have time to go through this entire list, a few of which we'll talk about shortly. You've got seven more opportunities to catch Chris Bodie at SF Jazz through this Sunday, including tonight at if 7.30 if you want to button up your overcoat and brave the rain. I'm so pleased that he could take some time to join me by Zoom to talk about these concerts and his fascinating career. Fresh off a stint at the Blue Note in New York City. Welcome, Chris. Thank you very much for having me. Of course. Well, uh, what's especially wonderful to me about your playing, and I mentioned it in f- passing, is is what when you interpret those great standards, you really do think vocally, don't you?
3: Yeah. I mean, we've, you know, I've had the great opportunity to work with so many great vocalists and, and it's, it's not that I'm just saying, like, I think the lyric is so important. I just think that the way vocalists put space into the, the way that they phrase, um, is something that I admire and try to do through my trumpet, you know? Um, whereas technically a lot of jazz musicians kind of like launch out of the pad with just a lot of beat lines all the time, you know? So, uh, you know, I think there's a way to build an arc of a show where you, at certain points of the show, you have that beautiful kind of like languid phrasing that, that I think people like.
0: Yeah. Well, I was thinking the other day when I heard the amazing Carmen McRae sing something like Falling in Love with Love, how very different that tune looks on paper. And the challenge it must be to teach young musicians how much to bend, how much to give and take, you know, even on a Sinatra, even where the rare is, air is rarefied. You can't really, it, it, yeah. it's not something that is
3: intuitive and yet it's not on the page. It's not on the page and you get by listening. And, and I think historically a lot of great singers, and I know, you know, Sinatra learned a lot from, you know, working around jazz musicians, you know, and, and seeing how they phrase certain things, um, for me, all those like Sinatra and, and strike and a few others, the way they sit in the time and, and lean back against everything. you use um, uh, that Sinatra quote just there that you were seeing um, as an example, but, but it made their style. So themselves. And, and I think that all the great jazz musicians have that way. Like miles is completely different than Clifford Brown is completely different than Freddie Hubbard. And, you know, it's the way that they kind of approach the sensitivity and the, and the, the macho-ness or not macho-ness of, of stuff in, when you play an instrument, mm-hmm. uh, that, that sort of sets them apart.
0: And speaking of uh, uh, miles and such, let's talk about some of your influences and how you kind of blended and selected certain characteristics from certain players when you approach your uh, your art. I understand there's a, a 94-year-old teacher or so that's still going in Indiana you might want to talk about.
3: Well, he he's since passed, but he, Bill, Professor Adam Blattam- I, I went to school in Indiana because of the charisma of two people, uh, David Baker, who is a great jazz instructor, and he's passed as well, and uh, Professor Bill Adam. But, you know, that they, especially with Bill Adam, you know, had a, has a, had a great trumpet studio of young people that really admire him and still his sensibility. It's called the routine. It's, it's very similar to being a ballet dancer, all the exercises that you need to do on the on the bar every day to keep your body taut. uh, um, That's very much similar to a lot of great trumpet teachers. And he was, his boundless energy and joy for young people playing the trumpet was uh, something that is just so palpable, was so palpable. And so many uh, people are taking that to the next generation, to the next generation.
0: Mm. And I believe you mentioned in one interview talking about uh, how Doc Severinsen was a big influence as well as someone like Wynton Marsalis.
3: Yeah, I mean, Doc is, the when I turned on the television, I was in third grade, and I saw Doc play the trumpet, I thought, boy, I, w- I want to play trumpet. And you, so that's at eight years old, and then a few years later, I heard Miles Davis on a record, and it sort of hit me emotionally. And since then, I've become not like the best friends with Doc, become fairly, fairly friendly with him, uh, and have so much admiration for him at how he led his life. Uh, and still continues with, the again, like Mr. Adam, the enthusiasm and the energy he has for trumpet and for passing on that, uh, his information on trumpet, his enthusiasm, being an entertainer, too, is, is second to none.
0: You have mentioned how um, it's important for you to treat your band members well. And maybe that's from examples of <laughs> some bad examples um, that you may have uh, been on the road with. I'm speaking specifically of a Sinatra anecdote. You want to share that with people?
3: Well, Sinatra was a gem to me. I mean, uh, I was sort of a... I left school uh, in Indiana University and arrived in Hollywood to do a two-week concert with Frank Sinatra. And I played the first solo at Soundcheck or at the rehearsal, because it was kind of a big coming-out party for his album, L.A. is My Lady. Um, so I played a solo and he said, Nice solo kid. And you know, I'd been out of college all of eighteen hours and <laughs> I thought Frank and I were destined to be best friends, and I went marching right up to him and said, Hello, Mr. Sinatra, you know. His assistant, very, you know, trying to like tamper down my naivete, just said, you know, maybe you not want to bother Mr. Sinatra. He was great to me. <laughs> I was a little bit of a high strung kid. But then I went on the road with Buddy Rich. He was great to know about and, and that's Know, from that week with Sinatra to going cross country with Buddy for three months, I mean, he's historically not nice to anyone. That movie <laughs> Whiplash is basically based on Buddy Rich. Oh, really? <laughs> for, I didn't know that. <laughs> oh, yeah. There was a there was a series of fifteen or twelve or fifteen famous Buddy Rich tapes where he yelled at everyone with such intensity that the director for that movie Whiplash based that character off the the personality of a buddy during those tapes
0: <laughs> i think some of those are available on YouTube. It wasn't fun i was only
3: them. on for one of them but it wasn't fun <laughs> yeah.
0: well let's talk about a polar opposite i just realized i just learned that uh, you were in sting's band how did that come about and talk to me about he how he treated people i interviewed him uh just before the shutdown uh a couple of years back now <laughs> in, uh-huh. in studio when he was out was here nice. to play his playing yeah for, yeah for,
3: for, for the last ship yeah, yeah. He, uh, well, he's become family to me and he's been like my older brother for, you know, 22 years or something. Uh, I I joined his band in 99. We actually met in 97 and he kind of came to me. I had already had several solo records out and he came to me and said, Chris, if you promise, you know, yourself that you're going to take a couple of years off of your own music, I promise you I'll break the sound of your trumpet playing to the world. And. He did just that and so much more Um, after the two years of being in his band. He fired me and promoted me to be the opening act. He goes, now is your time. If you're going to step into the spotlight, you're going to do it right now. So I'd walk out on stage, 20,000 people a night, and most of them still didn't know. They're diehard Sting fans. They knew me from being in his band, but a lot of them didn't know who I was. And, you know, we're playing a gig at the Beacon Theater and someone's in the audience and they're like, my dear friend, Oprah, would love this guy. And two weeks later, we're on Oprah Winfrey. I mean... You know, there, there's a lot of cross uh, uh, things that he did that are sort of behind the scenes. You know, like I've done some successful PBS albums and Sting is sang on all three of them, you know, like when you get to sing on all of them, a lot of people want to show up like Steven Tyler, or Ma <laughs> or Josh Grobe, you know, so nice. it's uh, and we've remained so close throughout the years. And I think that that relationship for sure, the one I'm the most proud of because it went well beyond the bandstand into like super hardcore friendship. And, and I learned so much from, you know, being around him and, and, and also learn to try to be enthusiastic if you can about people in your band. And sometimes it's time for them to leave and go off and do their thing. And you have to be, you know, out of the, the, the moments you shared on stage and, 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 and wish them well. And yeah, and sometimes you hate it when they leave. <laughs> but that's, that's part of life.
0: Well, uh, i was just reading your tour schedule uh, just back from the Blue Note next to Seattle and Florida, Hawaii in February. A nice break coming up, a working break, though, it'd be at the Celebrity Summit out of Miami with stops at Aruba, Curacao. Now, how do you mix things up for these various tours, and, and what can our San Francisco
3: audiences expect? Well, for San Francisco, we have a a, a big different show because we have some special guests that are, are, are completely different um a popular singer, uh, and although a new young uh, and up-and-coming artist named John Splitoff is joining us for the next year on tour, uh, my new album features him as the special guest and the brand-new song that we're, we're debuting on this album called Paris. So that'll be out, my first for Blue Note Records, and that'll be out in June. And I oh, i haven't made a record in 10 years. You know, it's, you brought that up in the opening segue, and that's the thing that got me a Grammy, but it's its shocking to me that, to think to myself, the last time I made a record, records were actually for sale, <laughs> you know. And now with Spotify and everything, it's just a subscription thing. And I'm just kind of going, wow, it's amazing how quickly time goes. Um, we're, we're happy to have one coming out, though.
0: Well, let's talk about that, uh, that phenomena and the progress of technology. Is there such a thing anymore as a concept album? given that people can pick and choose a tune from this and that, and it's all digital these days. I mean, it'd be nice to have that that concept of an album, but I don't know if that's as as prevalent these days.
3: Well, I'm not really a a singles-oriented artist, per se. Um, I mean, I've been able to tour the world very steadily for 20-some-odd years, and I know that people that come to my show say this is such an amazing evening of music, Um, and I know I have a hit act, I don't have a hit song. Like, you know, someone said, sing me the Chris Bodie song. And I think a lot of people that listen to my music, they put the album on and they just let it ride. And they just, you know, rather than a much, much, much bigger audience that is going to have, you know, bubblegum pop, this little hit. And, and that's great too. I, you know, wish both, you know, but but uh, I mean, I have some jazz hits and jazz stations and, and stuff like that, but it's more word of mouth act type stuff. And I think people will get this record and they'll just put it on and, uh, and let it just drape around the apartment or pay attention to it if they want it into the jazz part of it.
0: Mm. Well, I guess you haven't been recording because you haven't let yourself be in one place for too long. <laughs> you must embrace this lifestyle of constantly touring. I mean, uh, I guess it's no, not so much to worry about a mortgage when you're just carrying a suitcase and a trumpet.
3: Yeah. Well, now I have a couple of places, but I, yeah, I, I'm very committed to it, and it's, and I think that the pandemic kind of—I know I've had many conversations with staying about this. Like, it's what we do, and 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 speaking for everyone in the arts that had all that dramatic time off and how that impacts you. It's a, it's pretty profound. And I think that not only a, a a decorate generations of younger people and of older people like myself are going to look like that reset in their life, and when it comes to performers. I mean, if you're a young and up and coming jazz musician, the scenes in New York and London and, and LA have just changed like on a dime as when the, when the pandemic hit. Uh, and then how do we get back to interacting with one another and letting the star making machine come up for the next young, great jazz musicians and stuff like that is to be determined.
0: Mm, and you're out there giving that inspiration. Now, given that you're touring so much, did you ever do the classic Hello, Cincinnati, when you were actually in Cleveland?
3: <laughs> yeah. yes i've done that <laughs> and, but you know i even like it, i even uh i had a, a great relationship with my former guitar player mark whitfield who's great but he's also a little bit of a prankster and we were playing tulsa and, and i actually thought for a second that maybe i might get the city right wrong so i went over and i said hey mark are we in oklahoma City and he goes yeah yeah Oklahoma City so I said good evening Oklahoma City and it was Tulsa and he looked over me and winked and I was like you, oh, you <laughs> bastard <laughs> that's
0: great well we mentioned Sting uh it was such a great uh chance to talk with him and it's so wonderful that you have that ongoing relationship with such a, an amazing guy let's go out with uh what are you doing the rest of your life with Sting singing uh more channeling miles here I think than uh, Maynard or or Wynton.
3: Yes. Yeah, well, you know, with, with the mute kind of makes it uh, uh, that way. But I'm so pleased with the way this arrangement and this this performance also got a Grammy, uh, and I'm I'm just so proud of all the stuff we've been able to do together. Um, we actually did a bunch of gigs live together where he joined our band uh, throughout the world in in in. Uh, indonesia and the republic of georgia and and united arab emirates we did some exotic gigs together it was super fun. he's just a, uh, you know he's our modern day sinatra you know and, hmm. and uh, he's just such a class act
0: hmm. and you can come up to him too <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Here's Chris Bodie with Sting. What are you doing the rest of your life? Mr. Bodie in town through the Sunday. Got to catch it. sfjazz.org. Hey, while this is running, we've got two tickets for Sunday's performance at 3 p.m. Since I'm all alone here in the studio, be the first to email me with the subject line Botee, B O T T I to David at K A L W dot org while we listen to Sting and Chris Bode. Chris, thanks so much for taking some time today.
3: Thank you. You have a great, great afternoon and all the best. Have a great gig. Happy New Year.
4: of your life, north and south and east and west of your life, I have only one request of your life, that you spend it all with me, all the seasons and the times of your day, all the nickels and the times of your days Let the reasons and the rhymes of your days I'll begin and end with me I want to see your face in every kind of light Stand before the candles on your cake oh, May let me be the one to hear the silent wish you more oh. Take a kiss or two Through all of my life Summer, winter, spring and fall of my life All I ever will recall of my life Is all
0: singing what are you doing the rest of my life and here's the wonderful muted Chris Bode chiming in he's here in San Francisco Chris Bode that is through Sunday the tickets giveaways have been given away but you can go to sfjazz.org for more details about the concerts that are coming up David Tulipe. On the arts an arts block now for your Thursday afternoon at 4. BBC's The Arts Hour at 5 will feature today a showcase of international comedians a welcome respite from the comedy of errors we're witnessing on a certain side of the aisle in Washington, D.C. Still to come, my recent conversation with music historian and presenter Robert Greenberg, who talks about his ongoing collaboration with the Alexander String Quartet and his own series, At the Movies, all part of the lineup at SF Performances in the weeks ahead. In the background, well, that's the Brentano Quartet, performing music of Mozart. You'll have an opportunity to hear the great Don Upshaw in collaboration with the Brentano at the Herbst Theater next Thursday for a program called... Dido Reimagined. The Brentano Quartet has launched numerous projects that has Reimagined, the standard concert program. In 2002, they celebrated their 10th anniversary by commissioning 10 composers to write companion pieces for selections from Bach's Art of the Fugue. They revisited Bach's masterpiece, performing the entire work in an ambitious multimedia project at the 92nd Street Y in New York with dancers, narrated excerpts, and an installation by artists. Recently, the quartet presented a second multimedia project at the Y, which juxtaposed the poetry of Wallace Stevens with late Beethoven music and music by composer Martin Bresnik. Additional explorations have been into the gallant cello, the opening up world's Mozart, Webern, and Mark Strand, a poet with whom they also collaborated with for an exploration of Haydn's Seven Last Words as well as exploring Bach in a program called Bach Perspectives, among other projects. Coming up, based on Purcell's Dido's Lament from Dido and Aeneas, their current collaboration with Don Upshaw and composer Melinda Wagner and librettist Stephanie Fleischman, next Thursday at the Herbst, here to tell us more is the cellist of the Brintano Quartet, Nina Lee. Welcome, Nina. Uh, Welcome, Nina. I had your microphone off for the minute. Hi. You're good. You're good. I was bad. Hi. Okay. (laughs)
5: Hi. Can you hear me now?
0: I can. I can hear you now. How are you doing?
5: I'm well, thank you. And how are you, David?
0: I'm good, thank you. And I hope the quartet has stayed healthy through all of this uh, rigmarole and Michigas.
5: Relatively, yes.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Good. Well, let's tell me uh, how this program Dito Reimagined came together.
5: Well, uh, Dido Dido, (laughs) and Magic came together after a first round. This is actually a second round of collaboration with the lovely and amazing singer Dawn Upshaw. We did uh, a previous program that centered around Schoenberg's Second String Quartet with Dawn joining us and um, also performing Respighi's Il Tremonto with her. And we had such an incredible time collaborating and and creating and making music that the 92nd street Y asked us if we would be open to another project. And so Mark Steinberg, who's the first violinist of my quartet had just been kind of obsessed with this monodrama with, uh, of Schoenberg's, uh, featuring Jesse Norman. And we, he was kind of having it in his mind about maybe having a monodrama with Dawn and, um, he He had this idea of of creating a project where um, there would be a personal commentary on Dido and so um, through the back and forth between Mark and Don he they both came up with uh, an evening of music where the first half is really a mix of English and vocal. Uh, English vocal and instrumental music, um, which is sort of a big sandwich of uh, inside the vocal music there would be, it would be sandwiched by uh, the Purcell, Oh, Let Me Weep from His Fairy Queen and the Dido's Lament that would uh, begin and end the first half, which has an incredibly similar kind of uh, quintessential lamenting bass line. Um, and in between there we we explore uh, music of of English Baroque and Renaissance music, which is incredibly uh, dear to us. None of the music, uh, oddly enough, was written for the string quartet. We are kind of thieving and stealing from from the consort and baroque um, uh, viol music and so. We really, which is also really dear, dear to us. And then we asked um, Melinda Wagner, um, whose music we really believe in, um, if she'd be interested in the project. And she brought on Stephanie Fleischman, whose libretto is incredible, really beautiful. And from that, they basically wanted to have a new take on Dido, where instead of telling, retelling a story of this love-sick suicide that we have a reimagined heroine uh, full of like complexity and strength and uh, what would happen if she had full agency to determine her own fate. And um, this is what they came up with, and we're incredibly incredibly excited to be reteaming with Don and exploring this brand new work and, and showing the world.
0: Well, this is a one-off this coming Thursday, uh, next Thursday at seven thirty at the Herbst. Is it also, uh, does it have legs? Are you going to be doing this in other venues and other places?
5: We've had an incredible opportunity to play it. Um, we're going to be, by the time the project is, um, put to sleep or or napped for somebody else to take over it will be around 20 times that we will have played it so we'll be playing um i think in monterey and carmel on that trip as well and we've taken it to um various places all over the country
0: you can learn more about where those will be down the road at com. music of henry purcell matthew Locke, and melinda wagner Dido reimagined a response to Purcell's lament happening next Thursday at the Herbst. We do have four pairs of tickets to next Wednesday's show. You can be the first four emails with Brentano in the subject line to david at org. Once again, that's david at org. The concert next Thursday, 730 at the Herbst. What else is the Brentano working at beyond uh, this coming Thursday?
5: Well, we have some other programs that we're we're doing. We have Dvorak and his America, where we've been doing uh, a, a lovely evening centered around his A flat um, string quartet and his his association with America and spirituals. Um, it's been really fun doing that. Uh, let's see. I can't. We've been doing programs with um, promoting the music of Fanny Hensel Mendelssohn, the sister of Felix, who wrote a string quartet. And uh, it was, it has some incredibly beautiful, touching moments. So we've done that with. We're playing, and then some tried and true bar, uh, Bartok, Bartok's fifth quartet, and Haydn, Haydn quartets that are also very dear to us. So we're keeping busy as well as teaching and um, traveling.
0: Reimagining the uh, quartet and the chamber music experience, the Brentano Quartet. Learn more at Brentano Quartet. Dot com. Thanks so much for taking some time, Nina. We don't have Dawn singing Purcell's uh, Dido's Lament, but we do have her singing If Music Be the Food of Love to whet your appetite for the great Dawn Upshaw next Thursday. Again, if you'd like a ticket, first four to reach me, David at klw.org. Thanks so much for taking some time today, Nina.
5: My pleasure. Thank you for having me on.
0: Tickets for Don Upshaw and the Brentano String Quartet, courtesy of your friends here at KLW. Send me an email. I'm david at kalw.org. Three pairs remain. Well, it's always a pleasure to catch up with Dr. Robert Greenberg. He's good for what ails you, at least on the music education front. Dr. Robert Greenberg is historian a music historian in residence with San Francisco Performances. He holds a Ph.D. in music composition from UC Berkeley, where he also served on the faculty, as well as on the faculties of California State, Hayward, and the San Francisco Conservatory of Music, and lecturing for some of the most prestigious musical and arts institutions in the States. For the Great Courses audiobook series, he's recorded more than 500 lectures on a range of composers and classical music genres. I caught up with him just prior to the start of this new year. Dr. Bob Greenberg, welcome back to On the Arts.
2: Thank you, David. It's wonderful to be here.
0: Wow, already over 600 lectures for the Great Courses series, among them How to Listen to and Understand Opera, Great Master Series, where you dive deep into a familiar or less familiar composer. Am I correct in learning that it takes you 18 to 24 months to create one of
2: these courses? That's a little long, but 8 to 12 months is a is a true number. And by the way, if I might, I'm just going to, I hate correcting anyone. But it's almost 700 lectures now, Wow, 45-minute lectures, and I'll be back in the studio in June, uh, back east in Chantilly, Virginia, to record again. So luckily for me, it's a relationship that continues, a wonderful relationship.
0: And are you a a team of one for these projects? Uh, Do you have a team of fact-checkers or someone that reads through uh, afterwards?
2: Oh, thank goodness. You know, when you work in the media, as I've been doing for a long time, you realize you're only as good as the folks who make you look good and uh, that's true in what you do it's true in a tv studio and it's super true for what i do i have an editor uh a- academic editor editor a fact checker i have a producer i have a director sound person teleprompter operator three camera people in the studio it's uh, wow it takes a village
0: well, you okay. you just made made the point uh, in your opening remarks that I need a fact checker. <laughs>
2: so. no, all, listen, listen, that's why people get married uh, to that's, have a living fact checker. Or at least that's what I've discovered. Well,
0: that's why I have two cats.
2: Uh, it's, it's enough. For Isn't me. that what, what? a great idea, <laughs> I'm
0: jealous. Um, so this number must also be off. Some four hundred and eighty hours worth. It must be uh, well over that by now.
2: Yeah, it is. is. So
0: as well as your own series at robertgreenbergmusic.com for topics that the great courses just decided to pass on.
2: Correct. And the other, if I may plug, because you're going to be kind to me, (laughs) uh, at patreon.com slash robertgreenbergmusic, I have my own site on Patreon. Patreon is a wonderful subscription site that lets artists, uh, teachers, musicians, whomever, Uh, Post their work and people can subscribe to that and during the pandemic patreon was for me a lifesaver both emotionally and financially emotionally because I was able to write and perform and get my stuff out there and financially because I was able to see a little income because otherwise those in the performing arts got a little killed. During that period,
0: yeah, a lot but of I, a lot of lemonade had to be made from those oh lemons. That's for goodness.
2: sure. I, posting, I've been posting about five to ten thousand words a week, plus performances and vlogs and such. Wow, that's a good site.
0: Mm, nice, patreoncom slash Music. Was that
2: correct? That's it. Thank you.
0: We'll put a listing on that on our, on our website as well. Now, your great course, Music as a Mirror of History, will enjoy a live adaptation with the wonderful, uh, my friends, the Alexander String Quartet in late January, the 28th, continuing your Saturday morning series at the Herbst and then continuing on the 18th of February and the 11th of March. Tell us what to expect on those.
2: Well, this is a series that we've wanted to make for... We've been doing this together... The Alexander and myself for thirty years now, putting on these programs. Wow, uh, where I talk and they perform the musical examples, and then they perform a piece in its entirety. And uh, a course we've, I say, a course really, it's a, a concert series that we've wanted to do for decades, deals with that most fascinating and potentially problematic period at the turn of the twentieth century, when the Romanticism of the nineteenth century gave way to all kinds of extraordinary experimentation in the arts music that we love, but that still frightens a large portion of the public. Mm-hmm. Music by Anton Webern and Alban Berg and, of course, Arnold Schoenberg. So this is a series that's based on these transitional years. And we're doing five of these uh, lecture concerts. We've already done two of them. Mm-hmm. We've done France, and that would be Debussy and Ravel. We've done Scandinavia, or I probably should say Nordic countries. We've done Nielsen and Sibelius.
0: Well, no one's scary there yet.
2: No, no one's scary, but, the, but, but then it does start getting a little bit scary because we're going to do Hungary, which is Kudai and Bartok. And we're going to do Vienna, which is Schoenberg and Webern. And then finally, we'll finish up with a, a breath of relief for those more conservative listeners uh, by doing Great Britain, that will be Elgar and Rafe von Williams,
0: so backing up to Vienna, are you looking at that in a from a historic historian's perspective as just a um a circumstance of history that that type of music evolved at that particular time?
2: History, music, technology, sociology, sexuality. composers live in the same world we all live in. And composers react to that world. Composers don't create musical style. The environment creates the style in which the composer works. And what was going on in Vienna in the late 19th century was a magnificent empire unraveling at the seams. As a capital city, Vienna was a brilliant capital city, but it was in a state of denial. Terrible things were happening in Vienna in the, in the 1890s in terms of the rise of uh, the far-right anti-semitism, uh, anti-gypsies, anti-outsiders, as the empire unravels, unravels, of course, outsiders are blamed. And Arnold Schoenberg was an alienated Jew of great genius, a composer, a brilliant composer, who at the turn of the century found himself increasingly dissatisfied with a musical language that had been in use for 400 years, and it simply didn't seem to apply to his to the music that preceded him, meaning Brahms and Wagner, and, uh, and his alienation. And, of course, the technological explosions of the time made composers want to be relevant. I mean, there's a famous line from Debussy, I want a, 1910. I want my music to be as relevant to the 20th century as the aeroplane. Hmm. Composers seek relevance. And Schoenberg, for example, and his two great students, Anton Webern and Alban Berg, We're reacting to these changes in technology, changes in philosophy, Freud, Einstein, Heisenberg. It was a whole new time, and they wanted to create a whole new music, a music based, by the way, on melody, not on traditional harmony. Schoenberg saw himself as a simplifier. I'm going to get back to writing music that's pure melody, pure polyphony, that is the interaction of different melodies, without worrying about tonal harmony. And then something happened to Schoenberg in, in, uh, in 1907, I believe it was, that pushed him over the edge. His wife, Matilda, had an affair with an artist named uh, Gersel, a friend of Schoenberg's. Uh, when Matilda was forced to return to Schoenberg and their children, uh, Theodore Gersel killed himself, first by burning all his paintings, then hanging himself. And while he was hanging, he stabbed himself. <laughs> so this is, a, this is not a cry for help. This is an effective way of offing oneself and multitasker for sure. Boy, this whole thing, uh, his wife having an affair with his best friend and everything else, all the music Schoenberg wrote after that was completely non-tonal. And so again, personal issues, social issues, artistic issues, Whatever's going on in a personal life and an environment affects a composer. But the turn of the 20th century really was the, the end of the old world and the beginning of the new. And of course, as we all know, the great catastrophe of old and new when pushed together was World War I, hmm. which was between 1914 and 1918, uh, a technological war fought using the tactics of a 19th century war, which meant unbelievable amounts of industrialized death at the hand of artillery, mm. modern artillery and modern explosives. Mm. As well as, well as
0: a modern way of communicating what was happening on the fronts through yeah, mass good media.
2: Point. Good point. Good point. Mm. So, um, you know, this, uh, we've gone screaming and kicking into the modern age, and I'm not quite sure we've come to grips with any of it yet as a, as a, as a global society.
0: Just one fact, fact check for you regarding Vienna. It should not be a state of denial, but a state of de Danube. I think uh, oh, you, okay. you'd, you'd understand that one. I got it. Thank you. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, of course, a great fan of your work with the Alexander String Quartet. Beyond music as a mirror of history, what can we look forward to uh, in this 30-year relationship
2: that continues? This is a good question. I think next season we're talking about just taking the gig up a couple of decades, and that is... The string quartets and the chamber music composed between the wars, hmm. because again, again, the the, the emotional circumstances were, were very different depending on where you were. You know, in Paris, for example, you had two completely different camps in the 1920s. On one hand, you had those artists and audience members who were so disgusted with modernism, what they perceived as as having been the mindset that led to the war and the destruction of an entire generation of French men, young men, that there was a a turn to the past. I mean, so-called neoclassicism. I don't love these terms, but they're handy to the degree that they evoke the past in a new sort of way. Igor Stravinsky was one of the primary players uh, at the time living in Paris in this way of trying to dredge up the past, a more civilized age, one that contrasted with the brutality that had just been experienced. At the same time, in some places, there was a tremendous, a tremendous modernist impulse, especially a kind of industrialized music in Italy, um, in the United States. Again, one has to remember the United States was the only winner in World War I. We were, uh, uh, admittedly, we didn't go unscathed on the battlefield, but The homeland was untouched. And we emerged from the war, the wealthiest country in the world, and remained so. Whereas, basically, the war destroyed, what, the Ottoman Empire? It destroyed the German Empire. It destroyed the Russian Empire. And basically bankrupted the the British Empire, the English Empire. British. So... It, you know, the, the United States in the 20s, at least up to the Depression in 29, I mean, it was explosive energy. The discovery of jazz as a real music, You know, the celebration of ragtime and blues as real musics, that America had something to offer the world musically. And composers started using those musics as the basis for their work. So you have this explosive kind of nationalism in the United States Then a different kind of nationalism during the Depression when composers felt that they had to write music, that they should write music, that appealed to an every person, uh, the common person, uh, what what Copeland called the common man. So uh, it was an amazing period, the 20s and 30s, of traditionalism, or at least looking back to what had been traditional back in the 18th century, neoclassicism, uh, the industrial age music we're hearing coming out of New York and Italy. Experimental music, um, nationalist music, and that's what we're going to focus on. Back, back to your question. Right. Well, it's a, it's well,
0: a... now the challenge is to to create these and uh, make these it's concise the presentations and and make them as always as you do with some great humor and uh, and and entertainment.
2: Keeps um, me off the streets.
0: My own plug would be to back up a bit and do and again shamelessly plugging away. Why not the Mozart flute quartets? Flute is steer? I
2: know. <laughs> Maybe down the road. Luton Harp, I mean, yeah.
0: Well, you must have a room at the Veterans Memorial Building because also for SF Performances and sans Alexander String Quartet, on Wednesdays at 6.30 on January 4th, 11th, and 25th, you'll be doing a three-part series called At the Movies. Now, these aren't about movie music, but movies that have been made about specific composers. Tell us about this series.
2: Um, Melanie Smith, the president of San Francisco Performances, and I had talked about this back in, oh, my God, it feels like so long ago, 2019. It might as well have been 1819 as far <laughs> as i know. In anticipation of the big Beethoven 250th, which was a bust because of the pandemic mm-hmm. in 2020, we were going to do a series about movies made about Beethoven. Okay, it didn't happen. But we decided to expand the concept into a whole program called... Uh, music at the movies, where exactly as you described it, I've picked out a whole bunch of films about composers. Now, the original intention—the original intention—was <laughs> to find the most historically egregious moments in <laughs> all of these movies, present them, play them, and then talk about what really happened. But here's what I've discovered because I'm about oh two thirds of the way through creating all three programs. I've discovered that the movies are entirely egregious. In fact, what's really difficult to find is any historical accuracy whatsoever. <laughs> and so I've had to kind of... Give us, an, ex- my- give us an example. <laughs> oh, my God, okay. Uh, the Great Love of Beethoven. This is an Abel Gance movie made in 1937 about Beethoven in French. Aside from, you know, clogging up all of the, uh, the chronology and having people play Beethoven that looked nothing like Beethoven, My favorite part of this particular movie is that when Beethoven's uh, love for Giulietta Giocardi is rejected in 1801, and he decides he's going to run away, this is in the movie, and he moves into a windmill in (laughs) Heiligenstadt, in the northern Viennese suburb of Heiligenstadt, and is there while living in the windmill with this, frankly, little twink, (laughs) a boy servant named Pierrot, (laughs) that he wakes up one morning in 1802, stone-cold deaf. Now, of course, Beethoven went deaf between 1796 and 1818, 22 years. And it was that progression of disability that so affected him. He didn't wake up deaf. And so he staggers out of his windmill, holding (laughs) his ears, and... When he looks at things we hear nothing, and when the camera pans back, we hear the birds, we hear the fiddler, and so forth. And then in his mind's ear, he suddenly starts imagining his sixth symphony, The Pastoral, which actually wasn't written till eighteen oh eight. Where do we start? (laughs) Meanwhile, Harry Bauer, who's playing Beethoven, was fifty-seven years old and looked about sixty-seven years old when he made this movie, and Beethoven was (laughs) thirty when all of this was going on. So
0: Talk about you know, fact checkers.
2: <laughs> how, many, how many bells are being rung here? So I, I've had to change my tack in creating this thing because, because I mean, I, here's what I did yesterday. I've been working on Listomania by Ken Russell. Mm-hmm. You just got to see it to believe it. I, I don't know any better <laughs> way to put it than that.
0: I'll put it you on know, my, uh, my Christmas list, Listomania, do, or birthday I mean, list.
2: The one thing that will be... The one thing we will have is a good time. A lot of laughs, I'm afraid, at the expense of these terrible movies.
0: (laughs) Now, um, you're also a gifted composer, a Ph.D. from Cal, giving you some unique insight, I think, into talking about composers. What are you working on in that department, and where might we hear a Robert Greenberg opus in the near future?
2: Uh, Heartbreak. Well, you know... (laughs) I haven't written anything for a couple of years. Okay. And that's that's because the pandemic forced me to do so much writing on Patreon or at least I decided that's what I needed to do to create a um a body of work that I could sell. And uh yeah, the composing is always you know I, I that's what my PhD is in, that's what I was going to be when I grew up. I, f- I happen to think I'm good at it, but it just never really quite happened. So mm-hmm. where can you hear it? Well, online.
0: All right. If, if I, I, was, you know, I was intrigued by your festejo episodio, episodios for two flutes, uh, two percussion, flute, piano, and trombone.
2: <laughs> right. Well, this was, I'll, I'll admit, festejo episodios. I wrote that when I was a graduate student, my uh, second-year graduate student. So that would have been 1979. But we had some marvelous players in the music department at Cal, and one of them was just a killer trombonist. Well, you know what? you got that kind of talent, an undergraduate that can play anything and is willing to play anything. Well, every grad student wants to write for that person because that's what you do. That's the smart way to go about making music. And that, by the way, is how I've always made music. I've written for people I know. I've written, I think, five pieces for the Alexander String Quartet, for example, including a piano quintet that added Roger Woodward, and four string quartets. To me to me, writing for someone is all makes all the difference in the world. So anyway, you can always hear my stuff online. Uh it's up on YouTube and you can hear pretty much anything I've written on my website at Robert dot com. And th- that's all freebie you know, just go and indulge yourself. And if you want to buy a score, they're very cheap.
0: (laughs) One more plug. I'm a a fan and e-subscriber to your Dr. Bob Prescribes and Music History Monday email lists. It's a great way to swallow a quick music pill in a fun and informative way. Tell us how you decide on a topic and what you're looking to convey that will come across as more than just like a Wikipedia entry.
2: Yeah, that's... But first, I get it right. Let Uh Let me... Let me just be cheap right now (laughs) at the expense of Wikipedia, although Wikipedia has gotten better. About eight or nine years ago, Melanie Smith, or probably not that long ago, 2016, so almost seven years ago, Melanie Smith, president of San Francisco Performances, and I am nominally the music historian in residence for San Francisco Performances, asked me to create a a blog of some sort that they could run on their website uh, every week. And we came up with this Music History Monday, which was, I would write about some event that took place on that particular date at some point in time. Well, I've been doing it long enough now that I've got a whole annual cycle. That is, I'm in year seven now, and so I'm back to dates that I did the first time around. But there's so much material, and of course I've branched into all worlds of music. I've branched into rock and roll, into jazz, into pop, and. God help me, uh, country and, that, and international musics. Because there's always a fun topic somewhere, something crazy or stupid or wonderful. A couple of weeks ago, we had the, on the 12th of December, on Monday, December 12th, we had the birthdays of Dylan Warwick, Frank Sinatra, and uh, Connie Francis, all born on December 12th in New Jersey. Hmm. Well, that gave me an opportunity to talk about the organization in which all three are members, and that is the New Jersey Hall of Fame. Who knew, right? <laughs> and so,
0: Dr. Oz and, is in that, too, isn't
2: he? Uh, <laughs> he, should, he should be, and then they should take him out. <laughs> and the Pennsylvania Hall of Fame can have him. Then they can kick him out. These posts allow me, they run between 2,000 and 3,000 words, and they allow me to basically go wherever I want to go. Sometimes it's music, sometimes it's not entirely music, uh, but it's stuff that I find interesting and amusing. And that's what I hope is different from Wikipedia, because facts outside of their context don't really mean anything to me.
0: Hmm. Well, we look forward to more from the brain, mind and mouth of uh, Dr. <laughs> Robert Greenberg. and. All your work at SF Performances on your website as well. We'll have links to all of that at the On the Arts page. Bob, thanks so much for taking some time today. What a pleasure.
2: Oh, David, thanks so much for asking me.
0: Learn more at sfperformances.org. We'll have or at our website as well. That's it for this week's On the Arts. I'm David Latulip, and I welcome your feedback, not only about the new date and time of the show, but let me know if you've got someone you'd like to feature on the arts. Self-promoters, welcome as well. Send an email to david at kalw.org. My thanks to Janice Lee for producing the show. All of the shows are archived at kalw.org.